Okay, so let me read to you Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife as Christ, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, our bridegroom. It's so strange. It's so mysterious. Um, Father, I pray that you'd be with me and comfort me knowing that Even if I totally botched this sermon, you're still my husband. Christ is my bridegroom, and he loves me. I pray that these words wouldn't be spoken from a mute heart, and it wouldn't fall on deaf ears, that you'd use it. Father, if your spirit doesn't move, then this is all pointless. So we ask that you move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I was on Wikipedia like I'm guessing many people are on Wikipedia right now for finals, illegitimate resources for their final projects. Um, Just kidding. You would never do that. Um, But I came across this term, hypergamy. It's It's not monogamy. You might know what monogamy is. You might know what polygamy is. It says the same root word, but it's hypergamy, hyper marriage, the idea that you marry up. The idea that you marry someone more attractive than yourself, that you marry someone outside of your social class, has a lot of historic connotation, a lot of countries. Um, That has been the goal for your children. You want them to marry up into something better than themselves. And I think I'm guilty of that. I think I married out of my league. Um, Oh, I'll cue the awes. But Christ's marriage to the church is the ultimate hypergamy, is the ultimate marrying out of your class. It's the ultimate marrying up. Um, So what we're going to talk about is the proclamation, the implication, and the application of Christ being married to the church. It's such a weird idea, isn't it? So proclamation, implication, and application. First of all, we start with what Paul says, that this is a profound mystery. It's so hard to understand. And if you're confused after this, this is what I'm going to blame it on. 
Um, not that I wasn't clear. I'm just kidding. Um, but one, one thought I had while I was doing this is that I hope this makes you blush. I hope that I blush when I'm talking about this. This is such a strange, intimate thing um, to talk about Christ being married to the church. It's, it's falling on tender ground. There's a lot of, I know there's a lot of controversial stuff in this passage that I'm going to try to get at as much as I can. Um, then what's the next thing? The next thing is that marriage is a creation ordinance. Chris has been talking. We've looked at Genesis. We looked at how he said it's not good for man to be alone. That by nature, man was alone. And he said, this is not good. I need to make something for you. Make someone for you so you can be together with someone. So you could almost say that human marriage is a metaphor for Christ in the church. Christ, we're, we're not using, you know... Christ in the church is sort of like human marriage. God didn't like look on the earth and see, oh, this human institution of marriage. That sort of gets at what I'm trying to say. Let me use that. I can work with that. It's not that. He made it after it was already reality. Um, look at Romans 7, 4 with me for a second on the next slide. Um, just at verse 4. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who, is ra- who is, has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We are made to belong to another. Some translations said, you are made to be married to another. The context of this verse is talking about marriage. You've died, you're no longer married to your previous spouse, but you're married to another. And that's something we're going to talk about. Um, my mom did a study of traditional Jewish marriage and you know, I asked her to send it to me, and I think it's really helpful here. And if, if you know anything about it, you can come correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. But she said there's, there's four different elements that I'd like to share with you. First, the father would choose a bride for his son. It was more like arranged marriage, and hopefully they would usually agree, you know, the son would agree with his father. Then the son would go and pay a dowry, or what's called a bride price, a bride price, to compensate the family for parting with their daughter. Then the, the way he would propose, not like giving a ring, but he would go and bring a cup of wine. And if she accepted this cup of wine, they would share it together. Then that was an engagement. She was accepting his proposal. And at that moment, their engagements were actually legally binding. You weren't to live together yet, but if you weren't to be with anyone else, if you were unfaithful, then you were breaking a covenant. That covenant had been made right then. Then the man would go back to his father's house and build a room, an add-on room to the house. And when it was done, then he would go and get his bride. And that's when they had the ceremony and be married. Um, So I just wanted to look at some verses throughout the, the scripture that talk about sort of these things that are parallels. Um, for the first thing, the, bri- the Father chooses a bride. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, he chose us in Christ. He chose us for Christ. And second, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The dowry price for the church has been paid. Ezekiel 16.8 says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He's been, the, 
God has been engaged to his church. John 14, 2 through 3 says this, In my Father's house, Jesus, this is Jesus, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I may be, you may be also. So he's, he's prepared a place, he's, he's made a room for us in heaven, in his Father's house. Jesus is the bridegroom, that's the proclamation. And to be married to someone is to be one flesh. So what does it mean to be one flesh? That's pretty weird, right? Um, so especially, what does it mean to be one flesh with Jesus? We've kind of been talking about the human side throughout this semester. Now we're going to be talking about, we're married to Jesus, so we're one with Christ, right? Union, union with Christ. What are the implications? First of all, the implication is the church is Christ's body. That's, that's so huge. The church is Christ's body. Think about this. Your head, it describes Jesus as the head of the church. So a head plans what it's going to do. It communicates to its body the actions it wants to take. And that body performs those tasks. That's what we are as a church. We're the arm and foot of Jesus Christ. These guys up here playing music are a representation of Christ serving you. Hopefully me is serving you. When you you help someone on the street, it's Christ's love to that person showing itself. We are undertaking the work of God as the church, as his bride. That's pretty huge. Um, But one thing I want to do, I'm going to digress a little bit from these implications and talk a little bit about some of the controversial things we find in this passage that are really hard to talk about. Um, Sort of, it sounds, when we hear this, wives submit to your own husbands, um, of which he is the savior. You know, that, those, that kind of language makes us really uncomfortable. Modern people are astounded by this. Isn't this what we've been working to get away from? But we look at verse 21. This, verse 21 kind of sets the tone for this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're both, as husband and wife, to submit to each other. Um, so then, how's a guy supposed to lead? How do you submit and lead? at the same time. It says, look to Christ. How did he do it? Well, he gave himself up. You're leading in a way that's always caring for the wife. You're not just saying, I want to go do this. You come with me. It's where is the best place for you to go? What's good for you? That's what leading looks like. It's it's a mutual self-denial. It's a self-denying leadership. It's not the traditionalism we hear of that a man gets to just order his wife around and that sort of thing, that's, that's just to make the scripture sound ridiculous. Um, but, but then again, the, I'm not going to totally explain it away because it's here in the, in the passage that wives are to follow their husband. So, we, so let me tell you a little bit about a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, who's really famous guy, a theologian that talks about marriage a lot. He was saying this verse verse that talks about Savior. What does this mean? He said this is the same word Savior that's used in a different passage that says Christ is the Savior of the world, especially to those who believe. So what does that mean? It's a broader sense of the word. It means provider or protector. 
means he blesses and protects and sustains the world, especially believers. He's protecting them. So that's the word that's being used here. It's not that the husband saves his wife and like makes her to be able to go to heaven. That's not it at all. It's he has the protectorate provider role. Um, so, so in Genesis, when it calls a woman a helper, what does that mean? Doesn't that sound sort of demeaning? Well, there's several places in Scripture where God is called our helper. If you use a demeaning word to describe God, it's saying he's our helper. Tim Keller uses this illustration when he helps, when he's helping his child do algebra. He doesn't do it for them. He doesn't just take it away and do it. But he helps them. He enables them to do it. And the reason he can help them is because he has something that his kid doesn't. He has abilities, he has skills, he has functions that this child hasn't learned yet. That's the only way he can help. So you better believe that Christy has abilities and functions and skills that I do not have. And she can help me. And she helps fulfill me in our marriage relationship. And the same thing for her. Um, Another thing I'd like to point out is this doesn't say anything about women outside of marriage. Um, The role of women outside of marriage or in the church. So there's nothing here to say, like, women can't be president or they can't be mayor or whatever. This is talking about a marriage relationship. Um, The other thing I wanted to touch on is, as men, we look to Jesus as the perfect husband. He was an example of the perfect husband, perfectly leading his church. So who do women look to? As the perfect wife, who do you look to? It's Jesus, again. A lot of times I think we'd do better if we were like Sunday school kids and just thought Jesus was the answer to everything. Because more often than not, it is. Um, But he was the perfect helper. He was the perfect submitter. He was the perfect follower, even following God's commands to death on the cross. So you look to them. You look to Jesus. Um, And one other thought I had was, what does an, we know what a, an oppressive husband looks like. Um, a, an oppressive husband is someone who demands his wife around, doesn't respect her, just asks her to do whatever his whim is. And we've already established that's not what it's talking about. But what does an oppressive wife look like? It's one thing I would ask the modern skeptic, the modern person. What is an oppressive wife? And I would say, what is it if it's not disrespect. It says here, wives, respect your husband. What if, what if a husband, you have an oppressive husband when a wife is submitting and, and gentle and careful and the husband isn't. So what if a husband is selflessly leading? What if he's doing all things to benefit his wife and she doesn't respect that? He's just under her. He's just there to do what he's got to do for her, and she is the front of the mill of the place. That's, that's sort of what the scripture is helping us to see. By nature, we have these different roles. They're both self-denying roles. They're both submissive roles, but they look a lot different. Which one could you say is harder? If you, I asked you, which one would you rather have? If you ask me that question, I'm going to say neither. Those both sound so hard. Um, But we look to Jesus for both of them. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about this. I know this is hard. This is a hard passage about that stuff. 
But I want to get back to the implications. What does it mean for us to be married to Jesus as his church? So we're his body. So what is the vision for the body? What actions does he want us to do? If he's the head, where is he directing the body? And it says in verses 26 to 27, if you put it up on the slide, to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus' goal is sanctification. His goal is to make us perfect like he's perfect. It's to get us out of the mud. It's to clean us up. It's to clothe our nakedness. That's what his goal is. It's to to get us to stop running to our other lovers for the acceptance and fulfillment only he can give us. Um, Think let's maybe it would help us to think about how ugly our sin really is. Because this isn't this sort of weird. Isn't this weird that Jesus is saying, you know, my wife, she's not really pretty enough for me. I've got to clean her up. I've got to you know, sanctify her, I gotta wash her. She's got all these spots and wrinkles and blemishes. It's kinda it's not very romantic, is it? It just feels sort of like well that I mean, that seems sort of conceited even of Jesus. I've been careful in saying that, but it sounds like we're not good enough for him and he can't accept us how how we are. First we think about how sinful are you? How ugly is your sin? Um, we have a family friend who's a missionary in Kazakhstan and her family they only get Russian TV and she doesn't speak Russian so sometimes she flips on the channel and she can see the weather or whatever like what the, what the temperature is she can read numbers but there's a movie on and she couldn't understand it but it's this guy and he was daydreaming and he was picturing this woman and he was daydreaming about her. He, he, she only assumed that, you know, it's his girlfriend or wife. Um, just going through all these memories he had with her when he first met her. Um, just fun times, laughs, smiles with her. And it shows him going out and buying groceries and buying flowers and a card. And he's on his way home. And he comes home and the bedroom door is closed. And he opens the door, and his girlfriend or wife is in the bed with another man. And she's watching this Russian TV show, doesn't understand a word, and just is devastated. So sad, like the betrayal. It's just so painful to see, even in a in someone whose words you can't understand. This guy on TV is devastated by this. This is what it is. This is our sin. This is us, you guys. Jesus is the man coming back to cook us a meal, to dote on us, and we've run to someone else. That's, that's the ugliness that we're dealing with. But did it stop Jesus? Did Jesus just say, it's too hideous, like, I, I can't do this. You know, your fiancé cheats on you. Are you going to go through with the marriage? That's what Jesus, the choice he's met with. It didn't stop him. Isaiah 52, 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His, that means his form was marred beyond what it looks like to be human. 
Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You see, Jesus was made ugly to make us beautiful. He was defaced to restore us to our former beauty. Christ has scars. He still has scars. He showed his hands and his side to the apostle Thomas. They're still there. They're still testaments to his sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice the beauty of his earthly body. But, you know, his, his scars are there so that he could make his spiritual body, the church, beautiful. It's hypergamy. There's no halfway flesh or 1.5 fleshes with Jesus. It's one flesh. Jesus won't be friend-zoned by the church. You know, he's not, he's not, he's not just going to sit there and let you sort of have him around, but you don't want to introduce him to your friends. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's not the princess and the toad. It's the prince and the toad. We're the toad. And you can't be married to the prince and stay a toad. It doesn't work. He's going to restore us to beauty. That's his goal. So what does it look like to be rest- what, what does it look like to be like him, to look like him? Well, the next thing, we're one flesh with him emotionally in, in our passions. His passions become our passions. What hurts him hurts us. What he hates, we hate. What he loves, we love. That's what it looks like to be one flesh with someone. It's not just a physical thing. It's every aspect of your being becoming one with that person. I was going to share a story about me and Christy. Um, when I first was dating, dating her, I saw Rubik's Cubes, and it's really a nerdy part of me. But I embrace it, and you should too. Um, but, but she saw me solving it, and she's like, whoa, that's cool. How do you do it? can you teach me? And I was like, well, it's really hard to learn how to do this. She's like, no, I want to learn. It's like, it takes a lot of steps. It's like, it's going to hurt your brain. And she's like, I want to learn how to do it. So over the next few days, whenever we were together, I had a Rubik's Cube in my bag and I would teach her the next few steps. Eventually she learned how to do it. She can do it. Um, I don't know if she totally remembers how now. But she... she was interested in it, in solving a Rubik's Cube, because I was interested in it. And Katie, her sister, at our wedding uh, reception, in her uh, Maid of of Honor speech, she said, the first time I met Logan, he was solving a Rubik's Cube, and then he did some card tricks, and I thought, keeper. (laughs) (laughs) So, but luckily that didn't happen with Christy. She was interested in me. And same thing with volleyball. Um, I'd never really played volleyball, but Chrissy played varsity for four years in high school. And volleyball is now one of my favorite sports. Um, I enjoy it a lot. And I enjoy playing it with her a lot. So the, the idea, though, I don't want to give a false impression. The idea isn't that in looking for someone to be married to, you, you want to find someone exactly like you, you know, they like strawberry ice cream and I like strawberry ice cream, something like that. It's, it's, does this person shift the scales? Do things become more important that weren't? Do things become less important that were important to you? Um, 
it's not, it's not a self-fulfilling thing. You, you're there to fulfill another person. But, you have, but at the same time, you have this sense that you are being fulfilled. Um, that's, not, that's not your main priority, but that's one of the reasons I knew I wanted to get married to Christy is because when I was around her, I, I liked who I wanted to be when I was around Christy. I liked who she made me want to be. Um, that's something that's there. Um, and this, also I wanted to mention the difference being one emotionally or in passion. Um, there's a big difference between sex in marriage and outside of marriage. Don't be fooled by mainstream media. It's not, it's, it's not all, you know, you see someone and everything goes perfectly and it's just, you're washed away in a one night stand and it's just perfect. Um, Kevin, who was my campus minister at Belmont, he used to say, every time I talk about marriage or sex, there's always someone who asks me, Jesus says we won't be married in heaven, so there's not going to be sex in heaven, right? How is that possible? And he said, people who ask that question have never had sex before. <laughs> that was so funny. It, and then he followed that up with saying, because it's not that good. <laughs> that was so brutally honest of him that he would say that. But sex, human, having sex doesn't, doesn't fill the void in us that we all feel. It's not good enough. Paul says that marriage is a great relief from those desires, and that's a good thing. And he even goes so far as to say that's a reason you should get married if you have those desires. But it's not good enough, guys. It's Even sex is pointing to something bigger. Pointing to something beyond it. Um, so what? What else? What are? What else are we one with Christ in? We're one in legal status. We're one in wealth. There's no prenups with Jesus. He doesn't hold anything back. Um, it's been said there's two ways to gain wealth: you go out and earn it, or you get married to someone who has it. But we're not really a gold digger, are we, as a church? Because we're not beautiful or attractive, and Jesus isn't a chump, so that's not going to go well. Um, hear this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, become rich. And that's what the gospel is, that we were poor and he was wealthy. And he becomes poor, so that makes us wealthy. I heard a sermon last week about the American dream. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We all love the person who had nothing and, and then got it all, right? We all love the person who's on the bench and then came in and won the, the state championship. We all love the person who, you know, just worked from the ground up, built it all. But what about the person who had everything? and gave it all up. What about that dream? What about the dream of heaven? Does not outshine the American dream? And that's what Christ does for us. The person who couldn't pull themselves up. The person who was helpless. He goes down and gets them. Christ is our representative. It's another thing. Legal status and wealth. Um, that, that song we sang, the sands of time are sinking. I love that verse. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. 
I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Saying, I stand upon his merit. It's like, I don't, I don't have anywhere else to stand, even in heaven, even where glory dwells. I don't have any other case for myself than Jesus' merit. Or another quote, um, this great quote, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what Christianity is. You're relying on someone completely outside of yourself. So what do we believe? What do we believe because of all this stuff? Well, how do we live? Um, how do we respond to this strange, mysterious truth? Um, we can rest sure in Christ. If you would, go to this, the Romans 7 slide, Luke. Um, and I'm going to read this to you. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. Skip to verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What does this mean? It means that we were married to an old lover. We were married to sin and death. We had the ball and chain with hell. That's where we were headed. That's where we were going. But someone, if someone's spouse dies, they're not bound to that person. That's what Paul's talking about. You're not bound by your marriage. You say in the wedding vows, until death do us part, right? But we've been crucified with Christ. That's what Romans 6 says. We've died with Christ that we might belong to another, verse 4. We might be married to another person. We've died to our old lover, not bound to them anymore. We were bound to death, and we were bearing death's fruit. That's what it says. For we're in the realm of the flesh. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work with us. I would be lying if I'm not a little bit embarrassed by this, the, the sort of what he's implying. You're aroused by the law. You bore the fruit. He's talking about reproduction. He's saying, you had, you were, this was your lover, and you were bearing its children. You were bearing hate, malice, strife, envy. That's what the fruit, that's what your fruit was. But now we've died to that. We've died to that spouse. We have a new spouse. We have Christ, and we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things. That's what we're bearing. And so when people say, like, this, I get asked this question a lot. So can we, so can we just sin then? If grace is so free, you know, we're relying on someone else. We, there's nothing we do to earn it for ourselves. Then we can just sin, right? In Romans six, Paul, you can almost hear him shouting, like tearing into the page as he writes this: "By no means, 
That's what he says in Romans 16. It's like saying, I'm married to this person, I'm married to Jesus now, and he promises never to leave me, never to forsake me, though I've been so unfaithful. So that means I can just be unfaithful, right? He's not going to leave me. I can bear the children of sin and death. That's what that's, what that's saying. And they saying, by no means. We can't live like that anymore. We're married to Christ now. So we're to bear the fruit of Christ. That's the next application. Our intimacy with Christ bears the fruit of the Spirit. Think about that. What does that imply? It'll make you blush. So since we are free from the law and sin, why shouldn't we sin all we want, right? It has no consequences. Wrong. So have hope. The same hope for married people and single people. It's the same thing. It's your marriage with Christ. The single person in their loneliness says, Christ, you know what it was like to be single your whole life. And the married person says, Christ, you know what it's like to be in a bad marriage because you're married to me. He's our hope. We put our hope in Christ. Not in ourselves, not in our spouse, not in the spouses that we dream of having someday. We put our hope in Christ, who is our husband. The marriage of Christ to, to the church is the ultimate hypergamy. It's the ultimate marrying up. It's the ultimate marrying out of your class, out of your league. So, do you sense Jesus wooing you if you're not married to Christ? Do you feel the lack of the intimacy, true intimacy in your life? Do you feel these things that you give yourself to just leave you emptier than you were before? Jesus is the only spouse, the only master you can serve that will serve you. The only spouse you can have that will give himself up for you. Your career won't do that for you. Your grades won't do that for you. Your academic success, your friends won't do that for you. Not like Jesus did. Jesus, this is a warning that I want to end with. Jesus is patient and long-suffering. He does wait and he does pursue you with tenacity and with patience but he doesn't force his fiance he doesn't force his bride to be to be married to him Jesus honors the refusal of his fiance Jesus if you refuse him he will honor that he's not going to force you don't delay them don't put it off if you hear if you sense that Jesus doting on you whoop wooing you to himself, come to him. Hear this, this verse of Jesus singing love over you, Isaiah 43, 4. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Let's pray. God, we're mystified. This is so weird. Um, it's such a strange mystery that you've given to us in this text. Won't you help us understand it? Won't you help us know what that means to be the the bride of Christ? Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to live for you, to live for Christ. Not because 
it'll earn us favor with you. You've gone the links, Father. You've gone the links, Christ, to bring us to yourself. You've bridged the gap. So let that be why we don't run from you anymore. We don't run to these other things that just bear the fruit of death in us. Help us to be faithful to Jesus. Help us to understand this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, sorry. Yes.